0: Welcome back to another edition of the Dog and Duck Show. The season is over officially this time for the Huskies and the Oregon Ducks. So glad to welcome my co-host Mark Schmore and a special guest, a good friend of both Mark and myself. And the reason that this show even is in existence today, JJ Bansell. JJ, welcome to the show. Hey, appreciate it.
1: Warren, Mark, good to be
0: here. So a little bit of background. I first got to know JJ about three and a half years ago. We were working in uh, unique ministries at that time and we would get together and we would spend about an hour and a half talking about the dogs. And then the last 10 minutes, we would talk about the ministry stuff. And uh, that really forged a friendship. JJ eventually invited me on staff with him and during the course of that time, we continued to grow our friendship together. We went to the Rose Bowl uh, together in 2019. And uh, then in 2020, he brought his good friend, longtime friend and a former college roommate, if I'm correct on that, uh, Mark, onto the staff as well. And then about three weeks later, JJ just... <laughs> took off and left COVID-19 hit I got left uh, uh let go of my job but the one thing that uh remained was the friendship that existed among the three of us and it really paved the way for Mark and I to be able to to do this show so JJ we're so glad that you're on this show with us Mark do you have any comments about JJ before we dive in
2: well, you know, you were talking about how we wouldn't really have this show without JJ, and that's that's true in many ways, but it's especially true in that uh, um, uh, this will maybe come up a little later, but as I was doing some research, I was reflecting back on 2002, which was our sophomore year in college, and I have specific memories of watching an Oregon-Washington game in my dorm room with JJ, and Washington just throttled Oregon that day and JJ talked so much trash throughout that game that that, I mean, if you want to find a genesis to the dogs versus ducks component of JJ and Maya's relationship, it absolutely uh, began back in, in that dorm room. So um,
1: And I yeah. can definitively say that I have been paying for that moment for about 18 years. Yes. <laughs> yes. It has, not been, it has not been a good run. Uh, but might I might I say real quick, Warren, when you and I went down to the Rose Bowl, yes. was the uh, we were driving around L. El- Play together, Mark's moments, and and that was the first time you'd ever heard of Mark. And sure, That's sure right. enough, uh, here we
0: are. That that is a that is a cool connection for sure. Mark, the Husky season came to an inglorious ending. When COVID-19 hit, they didn't get to play the Ducks, they didn't get to play in the Pac-12 or the Pac-12 Championship. They didn't even get to play in a bowl. As a result, the Ducks went to the Pac-12 Championship. They beat a an overinflated USC and then ultimately ended up playing in the Fiesta Bowl as the, the Pac-12 champion. And the flag, sh- the flag bearer for our conference, and uh, laid an egg against uh, uh, Iowa State in the Fiesta Bowl. What, what, what are your thoughts and feelings about the game? You know,
2: it's uh, it's been an odd season to be an Oregon Duck fan, and um, I was, yeah, I was taking some time to kind of reflect on this that this season has felt like any other other season, and uh, I was. I think sharing text messages with both of you throughout that game and trying to, uh, trying to convince you that I wasn't as bothered by the loss <laughs> as you were assuming that I was, and, 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 so I've been trying to kind of wrap my head around that, and I think the way I can put it is, you know, if, if you think back to when the season started, uh, the Pac-12 didn't get underway until early November, which is just weird. We're going to look back at that twenty years from now and just be like, that's right, there was that football season that didn't start until November. Um, The very first game Oregon had, I watched at my wife's boss's house. They invited us over for dinner, didn't realize it was the same time as the game. So then we decided to watch the game together. So it's this thing where it's like it's the first social interaction we've had in months. Mm. Uh, We're trying to watch the game, but you're also kind of doing the socializing thing with people that you haven't really met before. Uh, That game, if you remember early November, it was Interrupted by the Biden-Harris uh, acceptance speech, because that was when the, uh, the election had finally concluded, which had taken that whole week. Um, so I think that they went to the two speeches, uh, they come back to the game, uh, Oregon has scored a touchdown, which we didn't see. It was just kind of a weird way to start mm. the season that was a little bit emotionally disconnecting for me. And All I can say is that really continued throughout the year. You know, for for me as an Oregon fan, Oregon-Oregon State game I typically think of as happening Thanksgiving weekend and that I'm watching it surrounded by family Mm -hmm. or or I'm in attendance. And this was the first Thanksgiving I've ever had where it was just my wife and I, we didn't have any family. We didn't spend any time with any family. So I watched the Oregon State game by myself. Um, And it was this weird thing where as soon as that game started, I just kind of had a sense of like, this, this might be a year the Beavers get the ducks. Like it just kind of, I, I just kind of had this sense. And so, you know, to, to bring it back to your question that I would say, um, as an Oregon fan, the only game that I have felt like a deep, deep, deep emotional investment in was the Pac-12 championship. And it was primarily because all of the haters that kind of came out of the woodwork of saying, oh, the Huskies should be in this game. Oh, Colorado should be in this game. Oh, Uh, USC should just be given the trophy they shouldn't have to play a game like all of those takes were out there and that was where like the rabid duck fan in me was like oh you know I'm I'm all in on this game and so that game I was pacing around the living room I wasn't responding to text messages I was I mean I was thoroughly locked in on the game and really really wanted to see the ducks win and after that it did kind of feel like there was kind of a relief kind of an excel excel Asian. It was kind of a sense of like, okay, we we had something of a success this season. Obviously, it wasn't what any of us would have dreamed of. They didn't live right. up to their ranking, whatever. But like, there is some marker on this season that I can look back on with some satisfaction. And so, by by the time it came to the Fiesta Bowl, I believe it or not, I didn't think Oregon was going to win that game heading into mm-hmm. it. I felt like Iowa State was the better team. I'd watched several of their games this year. Uh, I have a good friend who is a, a passionate, diehard Iowa State fan from Iowa. And, and hearing from him, uh, you know, I, I could just kind of sense that, like, I think Iowa State is having a really good season and has really good chemistry. They've already beaten Oklahoma once this year. They're coming into the game with some impressive wins. And uh, so was it a disappointment? Not Not in the way that you might think. Not in the way that, you know, losing a season opener to Auburn was the previous year where that right. just felt so deflating at the time, this was more of like, a, you know, I didn't know, I didn't really think uh, we had it, had the magic this year and and that proved to be the case.
0: Yeah, no, that's a good, it's a good assessment, uh, you know, and just to, to correct you all on one thing, we didn't text during the game. In fact, I intentionally waited until I knew that the game was in hand there was about two minutes left in the game, and the the, the words I texted you was, how is your afternoon going?
2: <laughs> no, that's right. Thank you for bringing that up, because yeah. <laughs> the, two you, the two of you employed very different uh, methods. JJ was like texting as the game was kicking off, uh, saying, I wonder when Oregon's gonna have to play a conference champion in one of these big bowl games. Like, and right. he started from there and probably sent me 60 text messages throughout the game. You okay. Are- Thing. You wait until the game is in hand, and then do <laughs> the, the passive aggressive. Uh, how's your afternoon going? Like,
0: yeah. So, two, two very this different is the picture strategies. that I came know. to my mind as I, as I thought about what you were describing, especially talking about Thanksgiving. Uh, but the picture that came to my mind is, you know, when you're that kid that uh, that that realizes that he's not getting a gift for Christmas, and you're just like ah, uh, like, this just sucks. This is terrible. And there's a kid right next to you that you, you can't stand. And he's got this package that he's opening out right in front of you. Except this time when he opens up the package and pulls it out, it's a bag of dog crap. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's, the, that's the feeling that I got as I watched the outcome of that game. So JJ, hey, give us your thoughts. How should uh duck or dog fans either one run with either either direction how should they feel about this season uh looking back on the season of 2020
1: oh man well one on that um analogy you used I mean I can tell you the Huskies won a bowl game this year and it it was watching the Ducks play that way um which as a Husky fan I gotta say in the in the history of the uh Rivalry between the Ducks and the Huskies, the last two decades have been have been brutal. So a lot of wins for Husky fans have come on the backs of the Ducks not looking very good. Um, so that was that was definitely a happy new year for Husky fans, uh, especially in light of not being able to play a bowl game this year. But I think what's important, and Mark referenced it, you know, this season was obviously different than any season that we have experienced to date as a college football fan and because of COVID issues um the husky season we never got a full sample size or really even a grasp of what type of team this actually was um you know obviously the game that we looked best in was against arizona but Arizona was the doormat of the conference, so it's hard to hang our hat on like, oh man, we're we're a dominant team. But granted, we go three and one, um, all games at home. Um, you know, however, um, but we we don't have enough sample size to really gauge really how good this team actually was. So the optimist, which I'm an optimist, I tend to fill in the gaps with with a positive imagination that had we had a full season to judge the success of the team they could have it could have been a 10 to 11 win team who knows um so i mean they had a new new coach new offensive coordinator new quarterback the expectations for the huskies this year coming into the season were pretty low so to have the type of uh, you know to go three and one and to actually look pretty good um it really bodes well for the future so i think most husky fans look at this year and go, I'm actually pretty pleased with the type of product we put out on the field. Obviously, deeply disappointed in the way everything turned out. Um, But if I'm a Duck fan, you know, we had, of any team, the Ducks gave us the largest sample size in the Pac-12. They they played seven games. In fact, I will give Ducks all the credit in the world. They won the COVID championship because they stayed healthy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, unfortunately, under the shadows of one of the best medical you know institutions in the world UW can't keep their players healthy um, for whatever reason um so we got to see the Ducks play seven games and you know the Ducks you you know even though they're the the youngest team um or maybe it was the least experienced I don't know which one it which category it fell into the Ducks have have dudes they got talent on both sides obviously crystal ball has got a recruiting machine going um, to go four and three um, and actually put a semi you know decent product on the field um I think Duck fans probably more than Husky fans have more concerns about the future um so that's that's an interesting interesting uh, thought to discuss there
0: yeah absolutely and you know you you kind of a mark you alluded to the fact that we started a little bit of a text thread and that text thread really extended for the next two or three days with a pretty feverish pace and uh, several very long uh you know posts and one of the things that we really got into was really around the idea of what jj touched on which is the the idea of expectations not only for this 2020 season, but now looking forward into 2021. You know, and so kind of just to rehash, at least from my perspective, Mark, the 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 expectations going into this season from the the national pundits was that, that Oregon was going to be the cream of the crop in the Pac-12. Um you know the the they were the the Obi-Wan Kenobi of uh, the Pac-12. They're, they were the only hope for the Pac-12, and uh, as a result, they came in ranked in the preseason at number nine. And uh, you know, we've talked a, a lot about the hype machine that that many um, Husky fans and other college football fans believe has been built in through the association with Nike and ESPN. But nonetheless. Uh, they came in with a preseason ranking of number nine. The Huskies came in with what would have equated to a preseason ranking of 32. They don't rank that low, but, but based on the votes that were received, they would have come in at about number 32. And yet, really, when you look at the sheer facts, they both were essentially the same team. New offensive coordinator, new quarterback, young team, and yet both very talented. The Huskies actually, as we pointed out in one of our text thread conversations, uh, is the most, has the highest percentage of blue chip recruits on their current roster right now in the Pac-12. So, you know, the, the Huskies did not come in devoid of talent and yet they did not get any of the the, uh, the credit or the expectation uh, or the pressure to Oregon's credit that Oregon got so what do you think about that and and how did each of the teams kind of respond to that that hype or that expectation
2: well I th- first of all I, I think you can't put too much stock in preseason rankings because they're just they're, they're a a complete guessing game and they're usually just based on kind of how teams finished the season before with, with maybe some, uh, you know, some limited context around that. Oh, I I know this guy's coming back or, Oh, I know this guy's not or whatever. Um, So, you know, Oregon the year before had won the conference, they had finished in the top five Uh, Washington had kind of had a disappointing year and they had replaced their coach. Um, so I think it would, it was reasonable if you, if you didn't know anything else to just assume that Oregon would bring back the better team. Uh, I think, uh, if you look at, you know, the year before when Washington was the defending champ and when Oregon was bringing in a new coach in Cristobal, those rankings were pretty much reversed. Washington was highly ranked coming into the year. Oregon was, uh, hovering out at the edge of the top 25. So I think that's, um, I don't read too much into that. you know. I think uh, if you look at the teams ranked, say, in the top 20 this year, and the ones that really jump off the page as having failed to live up to expectations, and if you want to include Oregon in that for the sake of this conversation, that's fine, even though they're back-to-back Pac-12 champs. But um, so if you say Oregon is one of those teams, uh, a few other teams that jump out, LSU, Wisconsin, Michigan, Penn State, Um, Well, first of all, several of those teams are in the Pac-12 or the Big Ten, which did not have uh, the normal training camp that you would expect. Um, None of those teams had a normal uh, spring training camp. And why is that important in all those cases? Well, they were all bringing in new quarterbacks, first-time quarterbacks. And I think to remove spring practice, to remove kind of summer training camp, to condense all of that basically into the month of October, which is what happened in the Pac-12, I think especially for teams that have, uh, new quarterbacks coming in, um, there's just no question that they're not learning the entire system. And in the case of Oregon, you had a new offensive coordinator too. So, so the quarterback, you know, that Oregon, uh, was bringing in, he, it's not like he's just relying on the same stuff that he's learned the new year. He's got to learn a whole new system. So, um. I don't read too much into this season for any one of those programs. I wouldn't assume because LSU or Penn State or Michigan had a down year this year that that means we shouldn't expect them to be a top 20 team next year. I think they've they've earned the right to kind of be taken seriously on that level. We may differ as to whether Oregon has earned that right or whether Washington has earned that right. But uh, uh, more than anything, I would say I don't take too much from one season to another for, for determining... Um, you know, how good teams are. Mo- most uh, great programs, if they have a lousy season, you know, when Oklahoma had one of their worst years with Bob Stoops, they came back and were a playoff team the very next year. So yeah. uh, for me as an Oregon fan, I'm just saying, hey, it'll be fun to see what happens next season. You know, there were there were some some positive signs and obviously some things that, that would need to improve, but I don't I'm not sitting here cowering in in fear or desperation that all is lost because of a a couple games that didn't go the way we were hoping.
0: Sure, no, and I I believe you when you say that that you don't put a lot of stock into preseason rankings, but the truth is is that preseason rankings do have an impact on how teams are viewed nationally, how it impacts their recruiting, how it impacts their final rank. So JJ, I wonder what, what you would think If the Huskies had gone into this season with a preseason ranking of number nine and the season had played out exactly as it did, they won their first three games, they lost to a Stanford team that finished on a hot streak with arguably the best quarterback in the conference in Davis Mills. Do you think that this the the final ranking for the Huskies would have been any different than as it then it turned out now
1: um i think if the huskies come in as a top 10 team and go three and one you'd see them in the top 15 right now i mean they might have even moved as far as six or seven um based upon other losses that took place and then that's a totally different story um i think that's i mean i think i would i would agree Preseason rankings tell us very little. And this season, in particular, is yeah. a unique is a unique setting. But I do want to correct one thing. Um, the Ducks are not back-to-back Pac-12 North champions. <laughs>
2: that's so true, that's it, an it, it, important it
1: Yeah, no. We don't which celebrate
2: right. division titles at Oregon. We celebrate conference titles.
1: That's right. OK, which is a great segue <laughs> to talk about expectations of a program because yeah. What I would argue is that Duck fans in particular, they definitely more recent than the Huskies, even though the Huskies did go to a to a college football playoff game against Alabama, there was never really any thought that the Huskies that year were able to beat a Clemson or Alabama. Um, but the Ducks in this last decade have been to two national championship games where both games I assumed that they would win. So the Ducks as a program have tasted the mountaintop a lot more than the Huskies have. Um, we all thought when Chris Peterson came to UW that we'd be there pretty perennially, but that, that wasn't the case. Um, so I think expectations for Cristobal and the Ducks to be at that place um, will create an interesting uh, dynamic for the future. I mean, I think it, and that's only magnified or compounded by the fact that the Ducks are bringing in top 10 recruiting classes so i would say if in the next two or three years the ducks hover around eight to ten wins which is really which would be i think for the most most teams in the pac-12 maybe minus usc that that's a successful year um but i think eight to ten wins in eugene is unacceptable especially with top 10 recruiting classes um i think it's rose bowl or bust um for for Oregon moving forward which only heats up the seat not that his seat is warm but could heat things up if Cristobal doesn't get Oregon to those heights in the future and I think that's why Oregon fans could look at a four and three season or other people can look at a four and three season and view it through the lens of a disappointment
0: I
2: yeah. I'm not sure I I'm not sure I agree with JJ's uh assessment there I I think uh there are certainly irrational Oregon fans that are of the mindset that, you know, Oregon should be competing for a playoff spot every year. So my evidence is only anecdotal in terms of the Duck fans in my life, um, people like my father or some other people like that. And I think the, the hope as an Oregon fan is, is um, that you're gonna put a good team on the field every year and that every once in a while when, when kind of when the stars align when you have a really transcendent quarterback in Oregon's case that's been Mariota or or Joey Harrington or somebody like that that the kind of when the stars align um you have a shot to really do something special um but that for the most part you're trying to win the division you're trying to win the conference you're you're just kind of trying to stay competitive in those areas and i i think that um you know the Chip Kelly era was this kind of magical uh time where it really felt for long stretches of time like Oregon just was unstoppable mm-hmm. I think even in the moment we were pretty aware that like it was too good to be true and it wasn't going to last um like I I do not in any way anticipate that Mario Cristobal will deliver Oregon back to the heights of Chip Kelly where literally it's a top five team every single year where they're playing their national title contention all year every year I'm those are not my expectations uh, going forward. I would love to be wrong, but those are not my, my expectations going forward.
1: Well, there's no doubt. I think, Mark, you're you're definitely one of the more reasonable fans um, <laughs> that I know. Um, if you get on a Twitter, you see a whole different segment of fans, which is true yeah. for, for any program. I mean, there are Husky fans that think that UW should be at Alabama's level every year, and that's just not realistic. I think another interesting dynamic is the type of investment that a big booster as well known of a booster as Phil Knight, I don't think that type of money is being pumped into the program at Oregon or the type of influence so that they just compete for the PAC-12. I mean, if we want to be honest, I think the PAC-12 is trending towards more of a group of five conference than a power five conference based upon some of you know what I would consider some ineptitudes. And the leadership um, mm. that I, I think the expectations are college football playoff.
0: yeah well hey let's talk about expectations. So going into next season and there'll be a time sometime in the next few months I'm sure where we'll do a full breakdown of each team as we prepare for the you know the 2021 season. but just very briefly looking ahead, uh, there's a lot of room for optimism, I think, for both programs. As a Husky fan, uh, we were thrilled to find out that uh, left tackle Jackson Kirkland, who was uh, all Pac-12 selection, tight end Kate Dotton, all, 12, uh, all Pac-12 selection, defensive end uh, ZTF, uh, who also was a Pac-12 selection and an All-American, and then our leading runner Sean McGrew all uh, indicated via Twitter and Instagram that they were coming back. So we have 20 of 22 uh, starters on offense and defense returning. The only teams, the only players that were losing from this 2020 season uh, are Elijah Molden, who is by far, he was the Pac-12 defensive player of the year, um, by far our best defensive player. And then Keith Taylor, who was another starting cornerback. In addition, we're losing Levi Amazurike and Joe Tryon, who didn't play this year. They opted out. But a lot of room for optimism. Uh, We've got four games of experience under our belt, especially for our quarterback, Dylan Morris. Uh, There's a five-star quarterback coming in by the name of Sam Heward, the son of Damon Heward, the nephew of Brock cured uh, there's a lot of reason for husky fans to believe that 2021 is going to be a big year for them JJ what are your thoughts about the husky season uh that lies ahead and you know any any doubts any reservations that creep into your mind
1: I think for 2021 with some senior leadership with all of our offensive starters coming back with some some dudes on the defensive line and, and linebackers that have got a lot of playing time under their belt. I think, I think there is no reason to, to not think that the Huskies can win the PAC 12 next year. I think they have the talent. I think they have the culture. I think they have the ability. Um, but obviously that goes through Oregon. So uh, obviously I think, I think our expectations would be, let's win, let's win the conference. And I, and I don't think that's entirely wishful thinking. I think the Huskies, Uh, under Jimmy Lake are gonna be a good team. And uh, I think next year, um, next year could be really successful.
0: Mark, how would you evaluate your expectations for the Oregon Ducks moving into 2021?
2: Well, so there's a couple big, uh, one big question Mark is, um, I believe that uh, the Boise State head coaching job is still vacant. Uh, unless unless some decision has been made. And I know that Oregon's defensive coordinator, Andy Avalos, was a star linebacker at Boise State, was a defensive coordinator there recently, um, and is thought to be one of the leading contenders for that job. I also know that he didn't have the greatest year statistically this year, <laughs> so maybe that helps right. Oregon um, retain him. I thought he did a masterful job last year running the defense, so I'm, I'm hopeful that this year is an aberration. Um, you know, besides that, I think uh, I'm, I'm optimistic about, about Oregon's chances. I think the one uh, area that we'll, I will be most interested to see next season versus this season is just simply the area of turnovers. And there's actually a, a form of statistical research that has come up with a term called turnover luck, which yeah. essentially says as much as we talk about, you know, playing aggressive and making the right decisions and stuff, that there's a great deal of luck involved in in turnovers every year and that generally a team that loses decisively the turnover battle one year can have a great swing the next season and so if you look at Oregon and their three losses they were zero turnovers forced 10 turnovers committed Mm -hmm. and so the biggest thing that I'm I'm hoping for for Oregon next season is a season where those those sorts of things go Oregon's way more often because uh you know they they lost a couple games basically in the final minute um where even one turnover could have significantly swung the game where if, if oregon gets several more turnovers than their opponent then i think it really could be a special season
1: next year
0: yeah i mean especially... what i'm hearing is mark mark's what? hoping
1: he's putting all of his hopes into luck Statistic,
0: well, JJ. What, well, what I, what I love about, uh, Mark's hard luck story is that, uh, you know, they, they also played two teams that were missing their starting quarterback this year from, uh, COVID-19. And they were one of the only teams to make it to the season without being impacted by, uh, by COVID-19. So, it's an interesting thing to to hear you say, I hope our luck turns next year.
2: Well, that, I don't think that that's entirely accurate, Warren, because there were games where Oregon had say 20 scholarship players that were not available to them because of COVID issues. We just never reached the threshold that everybody else reached where, where a game had to be canceled. But, you know, uh, Micah Pittman, who's one of the best uh, receivers on the Oregon squad just didn't play in the first couple of games uh, because of, essentially contact tracing you know, within the Oregon program. So I, there, there were uh, losses that were maybe less publicized on the Oregon side because they weren't canceling games because of them. And as, as far as the backup quarterback thing, I mean, I went to a game with with JJ and Oregon Washington game a couple of years ago where Braxton Burmeister was Oregon's quarterback because Justin Herbert was hurt and Oregon could not complete a forward pass. It was over from the time it started. Right. And I don't remember anybody saying, well, hey, let's not count this game in the record books cuz Oregon had a backup quarterback. Like, I mean, that that has never been true in all of football history. If you if your starting quarterback goes down, you put a backup in. This isn't Friday Night Lights, like everybody should have a backup quarterback that can play. If you don't have a backup quarterback that can play, it's a sign of a lack of development within the roster. So, you know, I tried not, not to make those excuses when Oregon had seasons ruined because their starting quarterback Tours ACL or something. Uh, so I, I just, I don't have much sympathy for like, oh, well, the UCLA team you beat had their backup quarterback in. He also played really, really well
0: this year. So, you know. All right, well, that's fair. I'll I'll, I'll, let, I'll let that go. So, hey, we're going to transition. We've got just a few minutes to talk about the CFP. Uh, the playoffs Um, so obviously if you're watching this weekend Alabama destroyed Notre Dame 34 to 17 uh, behind who was just a few minutes ago announced as the winner of the Heisman Trophy wide receiver Devonta Smith so first wide receiver from Alabama to win the Heisman and the first wide receiver to win the Heisman period since a guy named Desmond Howard. So uh, quite an accomplishment for him. And uh, he had a spectacular game against Notre Dame going for seven receptions, 130 yards and three touchdowns. And then the game that I think really shocked many of us was the Ohio State defeat of the Clemson Tigers, 49 to 28. Justin Fields battling Trevor Lawrence. Uh, He outdueled him through for 385 yards, six touchdowns, and an interception, and played well even after getting uh, blown up on uh, a a very hard hit, so lots of credit goes to the Ohio State program, and Mark, if you remember, we we talked about whether or not Ohio State deserved to be in the, the playoffs, but there was never any question in my mind as to whether or not they were good enough to be in the playoffs. It was just whether or not they had earned that opportunity. Uh, but how would you just either one of you guys jump in, how would you assess those two games and what are your thoughts about the, the, you know, the, the, the championship game between Alabama and a very talented and hot Ohio State.
2: I'll I'll jump in first. I was shocked uh, about Ohio State's performance. If you watched them the week before against Northwestern, they did not look like a team. Uh, if you watched that game and then uh, at the same time watched Clemson's dominant win against Notre Dame, you would definitely not have thought that you know Ohio State was going to do what they did to Clemson. Um, but it's interesting now, you know, we've had the playoff for seven years. And for the most part, the semifinal games have been decisive blowouts. And the the two most significant upsets in that time have both been Ohio State. Ohio State beating Clemson this year, Ohio State beating Alabama back at the first year that we had a playoff. Uh, mm-hmm. So there just seems to be something uh, about, you know, the Buckeyes that uh, even with different coaches, different quarterbacks and, and everything, uh, that they, they just seem to kind of have a way of, of getting up for these
1: games. and um, But I was,
2: I was very surprised by the outcome.
1: Yeah, I would say um, just on the Alabama-Notre Dame game, I think we all knew that Notre Dame was going to get crushed. And uh, it's disappointing to say because they're a top four team, and I don't know if there was any other team that could have taken their place and not get absolutely blown up by Alabama – uh, but definitely doesn't bode well for, for Notre Dame. They've lost six straight major bowl games. It's basically if they're playing after New Year's, they're not you know they're losing these games and bad. Um, and so but actually, I, to only lose by 17 points was, was actually better than what I what, what, better than what I thought it would be. Then the Ohio State Clemson game, I mean, I think everybody knows that Ohio State has talent. I, I thought it was a divine right that Clemson was Clemson was going to face Alabama again. Mm-hmm. I just thought that was going to happen, which is further proof that like you need to settle it on the field, which would give further, further credence for me to be like, we've got to move towards the playoff yeah. where teams that we don't think have a shot, get a shot. I mean, that could have been, you know, that could have been a Cincinnati or that could have been a Texas A&M that comes in and, and everybody thinks they're going to get blown out and they show up and they win. I mean, that's the only way I think we're going to be satisfied with an actual winner is if we can see it played out on the field, but Justin Fields outplayed uh, Trevor Lawrence and, and definitely might've made some money uh, next spring. So,
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So obviously Alabama's going to come in as a heavy favorite uh, against Ohio state. Uh, but are we underestimating these Buckeyes? Do they have a, a legitimate chance to to upset what I would consider to perhaps be the best Alabama team that we've seen during this entire run, and one of the more dominant uh, college football teams we've seen ever? What are you guys' thoughts about this game?
2: I think I think uh,
0: the Buckeyes
2: should be able to hang with them if, if uh, you know, if they, if they play as good as they're capable of playing. I mean, we did just see Florida uh, hang with Alabama pretty close in the SEC championship game. It never really looked like Florida was going to actually take over and win that game, but they were able to at least kind of keep pace. And I think, uh, I think we know now that Ohio state is quite a bit better than Florida was. So, uh, I'm hopeful, you know, as much as I was saying the playoffs, the semifinals tend to just be uh, these train wrecks of, of a blowout, uh, but we have had a history of some pretty good title games, even title games involving Alabama. Um, so I'm hopeful that this is this is one of those classic
1: ones. Yeah, I would have said there was no way that Ohio State would match up against Alabama until we saw that game against Clemson. I mean, I think the X factor for the Buckeyes might be Trey Sermon. Dude, that guy is a, he's a beast. Just, you know, Justin Fields is going to make plays. Uh, his receivers are going to make plays and they'll put the pressure on the, on the secondary for Alabama. But Trey Sermon is putting up some, some crazy numbers and he's going to be able to take on some of those big Alabama linebackers. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what takes place there. It wasn't Trey Sermon or yeah, he was uh
0: what program did he transfer from? Was he uh... I, I believe he might've come from Oklahoma.
1: Yeah, it might've been that too. Okay, be yeah.
0: Cool. Yeah. No. yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, the the fact of the matter is we saw when Alabama played Florida in the SEC Championship that, you know, with this high octane offense that Alabama is now putting on the field, it kind of opens the door for opposing teams to put a high octane offense on the field as well, as opposed to the old days where Alabama just dominated the line, they dominated the clock. Uh, So I really think that this could be an interesting game. If I had to put money on it, I would put it on Alabama, but I would not count out Ohio State for this reason. When you go back to 2017 when Clemson uh, you know, defied belief and, and broke into the college football elite by defeating Alabama and winning the national championship. They did it with a guy named Deshaun Watson, who was able to do enough with his arm and his feet to keep them into the game at the end of this game. Now... You know, I think Mac Jones is a pretty great quarterback. But if this gets to the end of the fourth quarter, I think I might have to put my more confidence in Justin Fields at this point than I would Mac Jones. So it'll be an interesting thing. I'm not going to be surprised or disappointed uh, regardless of the outcome, because I could care less about either one of these teams, and uh, don't want to see either one of them succeed, but uh, it'll be an interesting game, I think, nonetheless. Hey Warren, can I
1: just say one thing before we before we uh, transition? But uh, one one thing that's maybe not uh, on our radar is the fact that Alabama's offensive coordinator Steve Sarkisian mm. is now the you know, head coach of the university of Texas Um, in the last time that there was a transition before the national championship was when Lane Kiffin was the offensive coordinator for Alabama in that 2017 national championship.
0: Yeah.
1: They got beat by Clemson. So it'll be interesting to see if that plays into their preparation.
0: Excellent point. Well, Hey, JJ, thanks for being on the show with us. We're going to let you go. Uh, we're gonna move on to talk about the NFL. We've got another special guest coming up, so stick around. We're gonna have some more great content coming up soon. Thanks, guys. Go dogs. Thanks, JJ. Thanks, JJ. And welcome back to the Dog and Duck Show. Super glad to get into some NFL content with uh, my good friend Zach Whitlow. Zach is uh, an NFL He's living on the East Coast now, but spent some time with me out here in Seattle. Zach, I see you're repping your Seattle Seahawks jersey. Welcome to the show. Yeah, you
3: know, they, they never gave me any Ravens or Washington football team apparel. So y'all were just the latest in the in the places I've been to. So y'all just kind of won the contest that way.
0: <laughs> now, you know, you might fool some people but you don't fool me. I know that if I cut you, you're not gonna be bleeding green and blue. You're gonna be ble- you're gonna be bleeding blue and silver. So why don't you reveal your true colors to us before I have to expose you myself? <laughs> As Warren once says, I
3: am a wolf in sheep's clothing. I am originally a native of Dallas, Texas. So I was gr- grown grew up and still am to this day a diehard Dallas Cowboys fan which doesn't endear me to a lot of people on anybody on any way in here because we're close to Philadelphia we're close to New York we're just two hours away from DC so I'm not endeared to anybody out here really but yes my, my true loyalty does lie with the Cowboys
0: well when when you call yourself America's football team you know <laughs> you you kind of set yourself up to be uh, a target for every other team fan base that considers themselves to be, you know, on an equal level. So, my friend, I've got to ask you, before we talk about the playoffs, how are Zeke, Dak, and Dem boys doing right now? Um, You know, this season was one of the most
3: annoying seasons ever because we in 6-10, and 10, the thing is, I knew weeks ago, we, when we were 3-9, and nine, this season's done, it's over. If it were any normal season, I could just call this a lost season, chalk it up to a crazy offseason, Dax injury, yada, yada, and just move on with my life. But I think that everybody else in our division conspired specifically to torture me, and they were all so bad that even when we tried to just end on and move on, we couldn't. Because at 3-9, and we were one game out of first place. So usually at that point, you're like, there's nothing to play for. But unfortunately for me, there was. So I had to go the entire – what I didn't want to happen was get to week 17 and still have a shot. And when you know it, that's just what happened. So, you know, this is a rough season. But I think as much as I was really upset with Mike McCarthy for some of those terrible decisions on Sunday, not challenging – um, on that, when it was clear that that uh, not challenging the play, and then some of his late game decisions in the red zone, I didn't like his decision making. But I will say, in the interest of fairness, because this was a weird off season that he doesn't typically have his OTAs, typically have training camp, you know, it was a weird off season, and Dak going down in week five. I'm not to the point where I'm like, okay, call for his head, I'm not there yet. Was I overly impressed by Coach McCarthy? Not really. Um, but I do think all things considered, our defense at the beginning of the season was atrocious. There's just, there's no other way to put it. You and me could have went out there and played cornerback and would have been just fine. It was horrible. Yeah. Down the stretch, they got a little better. Diggs looks like a guy that I think you got something with him. I do still like Jalen Smith. I do still like Demarcus Lawrence. So I think there's a few pieces on that defense I like. I wouldn't mind in the next round, uh, in this upcoming draft, going and sewing up the secondary a little bit better. Weapons-wise, Cooper and Lamb are good. I don't know if we're going to be able to keep Gallup. Um, That's going to be interesting because I believe he is coming up in free agency this year. So I would like to keep him. But since we also have a quarterback situation we're figuring out, that might be one that we're not going to be able to keep But I think the other the biggest thing outside of the Dax contract is we've got to get this offensive line figured out because for the longest time, that was our strength. But when you look at the quality of players that we've lost, really, Zach Martin is the only real credible starter we have left. And he was in and out all season. So we have got to get that offensive line straightened out. Um, Some of it does just come with more repetition, but it's definitely not the offensive line. Zeke was running behind you know, four or five years ago. That's not what we have now. And what was uh, once our strong point is now one of our really weak points. So that, I think, weapons-wise, I think we've got weapons. I think you got pieces on the defensive side. But if you're not going to be able to protect um, whoever the quarterback is and if Zeke doesn't have a good line to to run behind, then that's just not the way our team is built. So that's, I think, kind of assessment of where we're at right now. I think that's where we are. So do I think we're going in the right direction? I mean (laughs) – in this division, I don't know if there is a right direction, to be honest with you. So.
0: Well, the good news is that there's not that far to go down. You can't go- get much worse. But the good news is that being at the top of the division doesn't take much improvement. So Two more you know, wins,
3: and we're going to be the kings of the hill next year. Eight eight, be, we got this.
0: Yeah, you could be hosting an NFL playoff game. Yeah, so One of the there. things I always love about uh, Zach is you every Monday morning, you put out your NFL takeaways and uh, you know that there are usually five or six kind of witty insights about different things lay it on us what are some of your NFL takeaways for this past season or this past weekend or looking ahead to uh, the 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 playoffs ahead um well I think that
3: I think the one big takeaway I've noticed in the last couple of weeks, the team that at there, everybody thinks AFC, Mahomes, Chiefs, homefield field bands, they're going to run away with it. In the preseason, I would agree with that. Early on my pick though, in the, before the season started, Kansas City was my AFC pick. There are two teams right now in the AFC, nobody wants to play. And that's Buffalo and Baltimore looking at Buffalo Josh Allen, I was never really that sold on him. There were a lot of times where I'd watch him and some of his decision-making I didn't like and his accuracy. Man, oh man, it helps. When you go get a a Stephon Diggs, it's incredible how that makes your quarterback look better. And so when I look at Buffalo, they got Singletary and Moss. They run the ball good enough. If you look at the AFC, anyone not... ...named Cleveland and Baltimore, nobody really runs that much. So you don't really need to have a potent rushing attack, but they do good enough. Their defense, I think, can make plays. So, but and and the biggest thing is watching Josh Allen. Now, last year, I was like, eh, maybe he needs a little bit more improvement. Right now, he looks like the way he's playing, he could be a quarterback. But I could see take this Bills team on a run and into Kansas City because he's got the weapons. We know he we know he can let that let it fly, and he's gotten much better at taking care of the ball. So that's one team I definitely don't think anybody in the AFC wants to have to go to Buffalo. And then the other thing, Baltimore, they've had a weird – you know, they had a little weird stretch. They got hit big time with COVID. But watching them now, sometimes if you peak at the right time, you could just run into the playoffs and you could just be unstoppable. And watching the the Ravens these last few weeks, they're back to being that rushing for 200, 300 yards a game team. Lamar's looking much more comfortable. I think the defense – um Campbell's back healthy that's one thing that's helped and um um, they went and got Wolf. So I'm really interested this weekend because Tennessee and Baltimore there's definitely no love lost between these two teams um even going all the way back to the when I first started watching football the early 2000s with you know McNair and Eddie George and Ray Lewis and Woodson those so this rivalry goes way back but I think Baltimore went and got Campbell and Wolf for a game just like this, where you have to stop Derrick Henry. Well, I don't know if you're going to stop it, but you got to limit him. (laughs) Um, But right now Kansas city, I think they're probably still a step above everyone in the AFC, but I got to tell you Baltimore and Buffalo, looking at them these last few weeks, they are two very dangerous teams and two teams I think could actually go into Kansas city and beat the chiefs.
2: Can I follow up with a question about that there Warren? Yes. Jump in. Yeah. So, Zach, uh, I'm, I'm with you in the, the last few weeks, uh, Baltimore and Buffalo look to be firing on all cylinders and Kansas city has, has just been kind of pulling games out in the final minute or, you know, kind of, it seems like doing a Harry Houdini act each week, um, which is what they did in the playoffs last year too. Uh, My question for you is, you know, the Lamar Jackson that we've seen in the last two playoffs is not the Lamar Jackson of the regular season. Josh Allen has only had one career playoff start, which was, which was a loss. So this is a much different pressure on his shoulders. That seems to be the biggest difference. If you look at Kansas city versus those two is, is the known quantity in terms of what they're going to get out of the quarterback. So who, if you had to pick between Josh Allen or Lamar Jackson, who is the one that you would uh, expect, you know, if, if one of those guys is going to kind of set the league on fire over the next month, which guy do you think it is?
3: It's a very good question. I really think – so I have to kind of separate because I think Lamar, I think, is a slightly more talented quarterback. However, I do think if you look at all the other things around, I actually kind of would give a little edge to Allen, only because one other weakness, Baltimore does have their offensive line – has been a little, you know, um, taken in and taken out with some pieces as well. So I do think right now – so the quarterback, I think, that's probably a little bit better suited, um, I think, would be Allen. Also, the other reason is, like you mentioned, the Ravens, they really are built to play with a lead. Kansas Hmm. City, as we saw last year, if they fall behind 17, Mahomes can throw that ball, and they're going to get right back into it. Buffalo, I think, again, last year, I wouldn't have really felt that way. But what I'm seeing from Allen now, I do think if Buffalo does get into a little bit of, of a hairy situation, I feel like I trust Allen throwing his team back in a little bit more than I trust Lamar right now.
0: Right. Yeah, I would I would agree with that too. I mean, I think you look at – it's not just about Josh Allen, but it's about the the weapons that he has compared to the weapons that Lamar Jackson has because with Josh Allen, as you've already mentioned – Stephon Diggs, one of the most dynamic wide receivers in the league this year, but in addition to that, possession receiver Cole Beasley has had his best season in the NFL this past year. Devin Singletary is serviceable. I don't really, I'm not a big fan of Singletary. Zach Moss has come on over the last half of the season, but uh, there's certainly more at Josh Allen's disposal than than Lamar Jackson, I think the real question for Baltimore Ravens fans is what we've seen from J.K. Dobbins the last couple of weeks. Is that going to continue into the playoffs? Because the simple fact of the matter is, is that is that you cannot go through the playoffs in you know in the cold in the winter against teams that have better defenses and expect that Lamar Jackson is going to be your leading passer and your leading rusher, game in and game out, it's just too much to put on one guy's shoulder. So, you know, any, any thought, additional thoughts about that? Or do we want to move on and talk about a couple other teams?
3: I, mean, I guess yeah, just one last thing. I think you're right in that that is the big question. Because, like you asked earlier about, you know, the, the last two times we've seen Lamar in the playoffs, especially last year. He, he didn't look very good um and so but I do think it goes back to what you're saying Warren is especially because now you're playing the top of the of uh, you, you can't you can get through the regular season when you're playing the Jacksonville's and the Cincinnati's and the Dallas Cowboys of the world and you right. can get away with that but now we're in the playoffs and the step up in competition now is much bigger so yeah you're right you can't just rely on Lamar to do all that so that is a very good question of what we've seen in Dobbins in these last few weeks. Um, Baltimore would be very good served to really feature him. Um, and another good X factor, another guy that I know very well is how will they use Des Bryant? Because he he's definitely not the Des from a few years ago. We get that. But I think from what I've seen as the season's gone along and as he's gotten much more familiar with the system, there is at least you can I think at least count on him for a couple of plays. And sometimes that's really all you need to do is give enough of a threat um, in terms of your receivers because beforehand, Hollywood Brown, he's really just a deep threat. Yeah. But Des, again, like I said, he's definitely not, the but of a few years ago, but I think he's serviceable enough. So I'll be interested to see how they incorporate him in the playoffs too.
0: Well, it would certainly be a great redemption story for Dez after being out for close to three years. Uh, yeah. You know, as I look at the, the, the wild card, Uh, weekend ahead of us to me the two most compelling games is uh the the Seahawks versus the Rams 12 and 4 Seahawks versus 10-6 Rams It really could have gone either way based on just a couple of games at the end of the season but the rant the the challenge that the the Seahawks always face with the Rams is that the Rams strength always is going against the Seahawks weakness which is the Rams defensive front versus the offensive line of the Seahawks now the Seahawks offensive line has been improved over the last season but how much of a threat do the the Rams pose to the Seahawks this this, this Saturday
3: I think they're a significant threat. Anytime you play a divisional opponent in the playoffs, there's always the built-in familiarity. And I think it's not just the, the defensive front, but also that back end with Jalen Ramsey. So, oh, yeah, the Rams definitely, like you said, the the in terms of matchups, they just match up very well with Seattle and have the familiarity of playing them twice a year. So they're definitely going to be a significant threat. The thing that is odd as you would think with a Sean McAvey coach team, the offense would be my least of the worries for the Rams. But even before the golf injury, the offense had kind of just been missing out, missing a miss, hit and miss. You know, golf was one game, he'd be lighting it up, and then the next game, you wouldn't know what happened. And so that's an interesting thing. I think my biggest concern in watching Seattle, it feels like it's almost been a tale of two seasons with them. In the beginning of the season, Russell was just lighting everything up. And the defense, I don't know what happened to the defense, but down the stretch with Adams getting healthy, the defense kind of started to come around, but it feels kind of like the offense is, it's like it's trying to add in and establish a running game, but it's almost kind of like, it's like, well, who are we? Are we the old Seahawks? Are we the new past happy Seahawks? So that's the only thing I'm a little concerned with in watching Seattle these last couple of weeks.
0: Mark, what do you think about uh, the Seahawks Rams?
3: Yeah, I think,
2: uh, you know, I was looking at the numbers for the, uh, on the offensive line for the Seahawks, they gave up 11 sacks in two games combined against the Rams this year. So, uh, you know, to the point that you were making earlier, but just as Zach pointed out, uh, where is the Rams offense going to come from? Whether Jared Goff is ready to go or whether it's Wolford uh, coming in, I mean, you just don't have a lot of... uh, belief right now in in the Rams ability to score you know 21 points um that just that just seems like a lot so if if the Rams are going to win this game it's going to have to be one of those ugly like games where we look at it and we're wondering how it has the score you know we're like how did a game finish 18 to 12 you know it's going to have to be some sort of a a game like that where it just has a, a weird vibe um maybe they get a couple turnovers from from Russell and um but I, I, I feel pretty confident. I'm not a Seahawks fan, full disclosure, so I have a little more emotional distance from it. But I'm confident on the Seahawks' behalf. I, I, you know, I would feel uh, pretty confident um, putting something down on them.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think at the end of the day, you know, when two teams are evenly matched, which I would really say the Rams and the Seahawks are very evenly matched, at the end of the day, I'm going to go back to the starting quarterback. And if you have to give me Russell Wilson or Jared Goff, I'm going to take Russell Wilson every day of the week and twice on Sunday, but maybe twice on Saturday since they're playing uh, a wild card game this weekend. Let's turn our attention to what I would consider to me, if I'm just a pure football fan, what might be the most interesting game of this weekend which is, and we've already talked about it, but it's the, the Titans versus the Ravens. So we talked a little bit about, you know, Lamar Jackson versus Josh Allen and, you know, out of those two hot quarterbacks, which one might have the better run. But, you know, this matchup is pretty interesting. Both teams are 11 and five. They're both uh, coming in with uh, two very dynamic offensive players, for uh, the Ravens, of course, is Lamar Jackson, who we've talked about. For the Titans, Zach mentioned Derek Henry uh, exceeded 2,000 yards rushing this season. He's a nightmare. Mm-hmm. He, you know, like I mentioned a, a couple weeks ago, he reminds me of the Nigerian nightmare, Christian Okoya back in the day. Um, but both teams have a lot of things to to get excited about. How do you guys, you know, rate either team's chances going into that game?
3: This is a true. This is a true pick 'em. I mean, like you said, they're eleven and five. They are. They, yeah, I, I don't necessarily think there's one that's defensively better. Tennessee. The last two times they played... now Tennessee knows we kicked their butts last year in the playoffs, and we beat them, danced on their logo, and beat them in overtime this year. Yeah. So, I think that. The one thing, though, that I will say in watching this, I'm going to give the slight edge to Baltimore only because I've been watching this Titans defense. And I, I, you would think, I'm looking at some of these players. They have Clowney, Kenny Baccaro's pretty good, Malcolm Butler's in the back end. So I'm looking at some of these players that they have and on just name value. You're like, yeah, those should be a good defense. This defense is awful. They cannot stop the run at all. The secondary can get torched almost every other game. And so you're just, it's a weird thing because you look at some of the people they have and you would think, and then Mike Vrabel being the head coach, you would think that would be their strength, but especially, I mean, watch them a few weeks ago against green Bay, go back a couple more weeks against Cleveland, go back a few more weeks when they played Pittsburgh, their defense. I don't know what it is, you know, in watching, but, um, so definitely in terms of the defense, I'm definitely going to give the edge to, to the, um, to the Ravens defense, but every time Tennessee is not a mysterious team. You know, if you want to beat Tennessee, you have to stop Derrick Henry. There's, there's no mystery about it with Tennessee. And that is much, much easier said than done when a six, 240 pound guy is running at you full speed, much easier than said than done. But I'm going to, I think Baltimore, I give them a slight edge in this one just because I trust, the Ravens offense going up against that Titans defense just a little bit more than the other way around. So I think I'm expecting like a three, four point game. I really think it's going to come right down to the end, but I think Baltimore pulls away with one last drive at the end, probably.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm torn on this game. I think, uh, I mean, last year still sticks out in my mind uh, and how dominant Henry was. And yet I, um, you know, I I look at uh, a coach like John Harbaugh, who's been around the block a few times, and it just it just doesn't feel like uh, that same thing is going to happen again. Like it just feels like they're going to have some kind of change schematically or whatever. Maybe it's it's really trying to force Tannehill to beat them and and taking their chances with that. But um, and I'm 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 with you, Zach. That defense is uh, is concerning to me. I. I do wonder is Lamar the right quarterback to really take advantage of some of those weaknesses, you know, um, not necessarily one to to sling it all over the field, the way that, the way that some others can do, but, um, but I, I think I'm, I'm leaning slightly towards Baltimore, but I'm, I'm with both of you guys in that I think it's going to be the most entertaining game of the weekend.
0: Well, I'll go ahead and pick uh, the Titans. I, I just, I like the trio of Ryan Tannehill, AJ Brown, and Derrick Henry as an offensive unit. I think uh, AJ Brown it may be, in my opinion, the the most underrated wide receiver in the NFL right now. Uh, he is a freak. He is uh, probably the he, he's probably the second most gifted wide receiver in the playoffs, other than uh, DK Metcalf and, uh, Tannehill, man, he's just a, a, a guy that, like you said, Mark, you know, using the expression been around the block, you know, the guy has just kind of been hanging around for the last several years and he's just gotten better and better and better. Uh, I like the way that, that, that those three work together. And, um, I do think that it's going to be a higher scoring game. So uh, I'm going to put my, put my, uh, you know, money on the, on the Tennessee Titans to win that game at home, even without a, a a legit home field advantage. And uh, yeah, we'll see how that, how that plays out. So just a couple other games before we we wrap it up. The seven and nine Washington football team hosting Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, um, who are 11 and five, obviously, uh, Bruce Arians has got those guys moving in the right direction. What, the Washington football team, by the way, comes into the playoffs with the 32nd ranked offense. They have the worst offense in the NFL. Um, Alex Smith, as, as beautiful as his comeback story has been, is uh, currently ranked the 33rd best quarterback in the NFL only one spot ahead of his teammate Dwayne Haskins, who was recently released. Um, and he's coming in with an injured ankle. What chance do, do the Redskins or excuse me, do the Washington football team have against uh our boy Brady and his Bucks?
3: Well, if it were the Redskins of the past, I'd give them a chance. But since it's the Washington football team of 2020, I give them no chance. <laughs> I just I like you said it's it's an awesome story, Alex Smith and the comeback, and Ron Rivera and what he's gone through. It's yeah, an awesome story, and even in my cowboy heart, it even brings somewhat joy to that heart. But much like we talked about earlier with the Rams, I just don't see how you're gonna get points on. Them. I they just Alex Smith, like you say, can't move really. Yeah, I don't really see any way Washington is gonna be able to muster up enough point. Now that front four is for real. I will say they yeah. have a legit pass Chase rush, Young. but yeah. I just I don't see it happening. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah. a good Chase, pass rush, but I just don't see it.
0: Chase Young is uh, you know, probably the defensive rookie of the year. So they've got something to build on with him. But yeah, not enough uh to to overcome uh our our old man, 43 year old Tom, Tom Brady.
2: You know, one interesting piece of trivia about this game, Warren, it's uh we've got Washington is the third team with a losing record to qualify for the playoffs. Yeah. Uh, of course we remember the seven and nine Seahawks, Marshawn Lynch, the beast mode run against New Orleans. Um, but the last team to get in with a losing record was the Carolina Panthers were seven, eight, and one Mm. got in a few years ago, uh, with Cam Newton at quarterback. Uh, they played the Arizona Cardinals. Uh, Carson Ah, was hurt. So Ryan Lindley, had to replace Palmer and uh and Carolina uh got the win so the losing teams with a losing record are actually uh you know undefeated in the wild card round and the two coaches in that game I
3: was just going to say that Rivera
2: and Bruce Arians uh so this is kind of a rematch here but uh but uh you know unless uh Tom Brady is replaced with Ryan Lindley I don't give uh, Tampa <laughs> uh or uh, Washington much of a chance of beating
0: Tampa Well played Mark good research well we're going to go ahead and wrap it up there's there's a few other games we could cover but for the sake of time we're gonna we're gonna call it quits there Uh, Zach thanks so much for joining us on the dog and duck show we definitely want to have you come back again continue talking uh, NFL and uh, maybe later in the year we'll do a little NBA coverage as well so thank you for for being a part of the show with us today my friend.
3: I appreciate having you. My only hope is, as much as I love Jackson and Mahomes, I really need one of these old men quarterbacks, so Brady, Breeze, Roger. I need one of them to win because I can't stomach having back-to-back Super Bowl MVPs that I'm older than. I can't get with that. (laughs) So come on, old men quarterback. Let's do this 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 postseason.
0: Well said. (laughs) Good word, good word. Thanks, Zach.
3: All right. Thank y'all for having me.
0: All right. Well, Mark, it's just us now. We're going to wrap things up. Uh, get into the the stat of the week the marks moment in just a minute but uh, I did want to just get your your quick two cents you told us uh, a while back that you uh, married into uh golden state warrior fandom and uh, probably the most interesting NBA tidbit that come at came out of the weekend was Steph Curry putting up 63 points uh, I believe what was gets the, the port against Portland right yeah. So against Portland. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. What what is the significance of that? Is is was Curry making a statement, and uh, does the statement ring true? So
2: I, I I grew up also as a Blazer fan. So whenever the Warriors and the Blazers play, it's kind of like you know watching your two kids square off, or watching your kid play your nephew or something. Because I uh, <laughs> I I'm, I'm a huge Damian Lillard fan. Lillard and McCollum combined for sixty and then Curry puts 62 on him. So, you know, I've I've been following the Warriors this year, and they've been absolutely blown off the court in a few games, especially by better teams that they've played. And um, and then the games that they have won, they've needed Curry to basically um, not, not be quite that good, but they've needed Curry to be the best player on the floor um, yeah. convincingly. So uh, I mean, they're really missing Clay Thompson. They've got Draymond Green back now. They've won two in a row since since he came back. So maybe he can kind of stabilize them, give them a little bit of a defensive presence there. But I think they're going to be a borderline playoff team. I don't really expect them to contend in the West, which is which is disappointing because I think if Clay was back, it would be kind of fun to see, can this team roll it back one more time? Yeah. Um, I don't know how much it's a statement or how much it's just the fact that you know Steph Curry is still Steph Curry he's still the greatest shooter that the game has ever seen and he's still capable of having nights where um where he's just really really entertaining to watch I mean he's one of the most entertaining athletes of my lifetime and um and even if they're a 42 and 40 team if he's having nights like this every once in a while he's gonna he's gonna keep them worth watching
0: yeah I mean Steph Curry uh in, and I have to confess, I haven't been as in, involved in the NBA at the beginning of the season. But, you know, is is this going to be uh, a year where Steph Curry basically has to kind of be like the Kobe Bryant of uh, the early 2010s where, you know, the only chance that they have, the Lakers have to win a game is just for Kobe to put up massive amounts of points. Is that is that kind of what we're looking at with the the Warriors this year? Yeah, I think
2: it was 2006 when Kobe led the Lakers to the eight seed. It was just a lineup of, of castoffs surrounding him. They got in as the eight seed. They took Phoenix to seven games in the first round and it was just entirely Kobe, to be honest. I don't know if, if, uh, if the Warriors are even going to accomplish that. I think um, the West is so loaded right now yeah. with, with good teams. Yeah. Um, but it would it it'll be really interesting. I do think great players tend to have their best statistical seasons on their worst teams. Kobe in two thousand six yeah. was an example of that. That's the most he ever scored. You know, Jordan scored much more in the late eighties than he did when they were winning titles in the nineties. And so, if if this is the year where Steph is just kind of unleashed every night, that could be its own reward.
0: Yeah, that's good. Well, hey, let's talk about the stat of the week, and uh, we'll. We'll go back to the NFL for this one. I, I I found this on Twitter a couple of days ago. I thought this was pretty interesting. You mentioned coaches a little while ago. So if the KFC, if the KC Chiefs um, win their divisional game, they will become the first team in history to host three AFC championship games. The only team to do it in the NFC was the 2002 to 2004 Philadelphia Eagles. Both teams remarkably were coached by Andy Reid. How about that?
2: Yeah, amazing stat. He doesn't get enough credit. He was a brilliant offensive coach for almost two decades before getting Pat Mahomes. And now we're seeing what he can do uh, when he's matched up with a really special talent. So yeah, that's a great poll.
0: That's great. All right, uh Mark, give us your uh give us your uh, stat of the week. Yeah, well,
2: you mentioned Derrick Henry uh running for over 2000 yards this season is the eighth player to do that. It's an interesting list. It does not include a couple names that you would think would be on it. Emmitt Smith has never rushed for 2000 yards in a season. Walter Payton never rushed for 2000 yards in the season, but there is another member of the Tennessee Titans who is on this list. Warren, you have one guess. Can you name another Tennessee Titan who has rushed for 2,000 yards in a season?
0: I can. A certain guy from East Eastern Carolina University ran a 4 4 in the NFL Combine by the name of Chris Johnson. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Amazing. Amazing that they've had uh, two different guys on this list, and, and Eddie George is not one of them. Like you
0: would have thought, you know, right.
2: maybe uh, – He had a run there, so um,
0: great. I think think Eddie George had a couple of 1,500, 1,600-yard seasons, but um, to accomplish a 2,000-yard season requires, as we saw this year, multiple 200-plus-yard games.
2: Yeah.
0: I mean, that's so incredible, especially in this era where most teams are rotating a stable of running backs in and not you know not having that primary uh you know bell cow back so you know we need to enjoy this derrick henry era for as long as we can because it's just not sustainable um but you know it's an interesting thing with derrick henry mark because if you look at his career thus far it's kind of the reverse of what we often see with running backs, usually ultra talented Heisman quality running backs like Derrick Henry. They come in, they put up big yardage in their first two or three years, and then they begin to taper off with the wear and tear of the NFL. And yet with Derrick Henry, he has increased his success every year since coming into the league. So it's, It'll be interesting to see how his career continues to, to either arc or begin to, you know, digress in the years ahead. Yeah. All right, Mark, give us your marks moment.
2: Well, Warren, I'm. Uh, we've we've had a lot of NFL talk, talk and that's where I'm going to keep it here for the marks moment. Um, thinking about one particular game this week, I'm thinking about Buffalo, and if there was one game on the schedule this week that I where I could wave a magic wand and the stadium could be. Full of fans, it would be Buffalo hosting Indianapolis. Um, Bills fans have been waiting quite a while for this moment. Last time Buffalo hosted a playoff game was 24 years ago. They lost to Jacksonville. That was Jacksonville Jaguars' first playoff win. Tom Coughlin, the coach, Mark Brunel, Washington Husky, playing quarterback for the Jags. And that was Jim Kelly's final game as the Bills quarterback, was the last time Buffalo has hosted a playoff game. So if you think about Buffalo's kind of playoff history, it's mostly defined uh, by kind of moments of tragedy. Um, most recently, it was the Music City Miracle when they were leading in the final seconds against the Tennessee Titans, and the Titans executed this incredible trick play on their kickoff return to, to beat Buffalo. If you go back to the to the Jim Kelly era, this team was basically defined by their four trips to the Super Bowl, which all ended in, in tragic fashion. The Buffalo Bills are really kind of the Shakespearean tragedy. And the Buffalo fans have kind of um, taken a certain pride in kind of how they have come alongside these teams that, um, that experienced such uh, devastating heartbreak in, in sports terms. And so, you know, one example Scott Norwood missed a 47 yard yeah. field goal at the end of Super, Super Bowl 25 against the Giants. That was the closest the Bills ever came to winning a Super Bowl. When the Bills came back to Buffalo, they kind of had a, a season-ending rally in downtown Buffalo, and the fans were there chanting, we want Scott, we want Scott. And and Norwood came out in, in tears, and he said, "He's I've never felt more loved than right mm-hmm. now because of how the Buffalo fans responded to him. Or um, Buffalo fans loved Don Beebe because mm-hmm. late in Super Bowl 27, when uh, Dallas was just blowing the doors off the Bills, they sacked the quarterback, Leon Lett of the Cowboys picks it up and he's he's running for a, a long touchdown run and he kind of holds out the ball to celebrate at the end of his run. And Don Beebe never gave up on the play. He chased him down. He knocked the ball away from Leon Lett. Leon Lett kind of became a joke for a while yeah. or a meme, you could say at the time for the time. And, uh, and Don Beebe got all this fan mail from Buffalo saying like, hey, you personified what it means to be a Buffalo Bill. Like you never gave yeah. up, blah, blah, blah but but these are all moments that are um you know centered in in losses and so there's really only one um moment that kind of uh captures like the dynamic energy of those buffalo bills teams that came in a win and that was a wild card win 1993 against the houston oilers the bills were hosting a wild mm-hmm. card game keep in mind they'd already been to two super bowls they fell behind 38 to 3 And Jim Kelly, their star quarterback, got injured. Now, if there's a time for a team to roll over, it's after they've already lost two Super Bowls and they're down 38-3 to and their quarterback just got knocked out of the game. But Buffalo rallied and they were led in that rally by their backup quarterback, Frank Reich, came in through four touchdown passes. Buffalo won 41-38. to It's the greatest comeback in playoff history. Mm -hmm. And so fast forward to this weekend, here is Buffalo hosting a playoff game for the first time since those glory days. And who is on the opposing sidelines? None other than Frank Reich coaching the Indianapolis Colts. And here, kind of as I think about this, Warren, my, my final thought is if nothing else, I can tell you this. If Bills, if the Bills lose in excruciating fashion this weekend, those Bills fans will still be really happy for Frank Reich.
0: I love it. I love it. I remember that game vividly. I was in high school at that time. And, uh, you know, we both, Mark, you and I are both uh, believers in, in Christ. And I was just beginning my faith journey with the Lord at that time. And after that game, you may know this story, Mark, but after that game in the locker room, with all of the reporters there ready to ask Frank Reich how he accomplished this greatest comeback in the history of the NFL playoffs. He read the lyrics to a song called In Christ Alone. And uh, Did not know that. It, it was one of the most incredible moments for just a humble guy like Frank Reich to just share, his faith and to say, you know what? At the end of the day, whether I win or lose, my source of strength and my source of hope is in Christ alone. And uh, so for me, that story is more than just a sports story. It's a life story. And it's one that really motivated my faith in many ways for the, the, the years to come because I thought, well, wow, If a guy like Frank Reich can be that bold to share his faith in that moment, then what's stopping me? So uh, that is a beautiful story. I love that, Mark. And um, if you get the chance, you can Google on YouTube, um, Frank Reich in Christ alone, and you'll get a little montage video that, that puts it all together. It's pretty, pretty fantastic. All right, well, let me finish with my parting shot. And um, Mark, you brought up Sarah Fuller uh, a few weeks ago in your Mark's moment. And I wanted to run with that a little bit and just thinking about how progress for women in sports is really progress for sports. Just uh, yesterday, the Boston Red Sox announced uh, uh, Bianca Smith will become a minor league coach. She's the first black woman to coach in professional baseball history. Uh, Kim, I don't even know how to say her last name, but it's NG, Ng, Kim Ng, uh, became the first woman to hold the role of general manager on a men's North American sporting team uh, in baseball, Major League Baseball with the Miami Marlins. Spurs, uh, San Antonio Spurs coach Becky Hammond became the first woman to act as a head coach of an NBA team uh, a few weeks ago and uh, uh and then w- in addition to that Katie Sowers with uh with the San Francisco 49ers Callie Brown- Brownson with the Browns and then Sarah Fuller with the Vanderbilt uh Commodores as a kicker it's an exciting season for women in sports uh even just thinking back to this Husky season, the dog uh, and duck show, the greatest comeback of this season for the Huskies was um, the play-by-play was done by a woman, and uh, so when we go back and listen to that game years from now, we're gonna hear a woman commentating that that game. So great, great stuff for women in sports. I know as the father of an 18 year old daughter, that is important, that means a lot. And uh, it's great to see those kind of things happening in our world and to be able to celebrate those things. So for for me and for all of my uh, dog fans, I wanna say thank you to JJ Vansel, or Zach Whitlow for joining us on the show. Mark, do you have any final thoughts before we close?
2: hey we got for the first time ever we've got six nfl playoff games in one weekend so um you know measure your time accordingly (laughs)
0: enjoy it enjoy it well we'll be back next week so continue to join us on the dog and duck show we'll see you next time